the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. Great way to start the Christmas season, hey? Being told how hopeless you are. But I think um, if we're honest, if we think about ourselves, there's times where we've experienced what Charlie's experiencing in that moment where people have come to us and sent some very unkind words, told us how hopeless we are. Maybe we actually did something that was bad. Maybe there was something that we... Yeah, something we did that, that we're ashamed of and people are like, you're so hopeless. Or maybe it was something silly like that, like you bring the wrong Christmas decorations and people are like, you're hopeless. Like sometimes it's the other people that's the problem. But nevertheless, we're in those, we, we've experienced times like that where we're being told that we're hopeless. And that's a terrible feeling. Terrible to, to, to have people say those kinds of things to us or to have those kinds of feelings of hopelessness. But sometimes it's far more long lasting than just uh, kind of some bullying in, at, the, at the school when you were a kid. Sometimes those feelings of hopelessness can last for, for years or sometimes for decades. For nations, feelings of hopelessness can last for centuries. The nation of Israel 2,000 years ago was like that. It had been over 400 years since the people heard from God. 400 years since they had heard these words from the prophet Malachi. Malachi writes this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil, evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And four centuries later, well, they go through four centuries of struggle and pain. Four centuries of feeling hopeless because they are constantly under the, the, the rule of different empires that come and go. Over and over again, these empires come and they battle and then they take over. And maybe it looks like the, at, at one point there might be like a spark of light, like a match in a dark room, but the winds of these evil empires blow through and they're just oppressed again. Imagine living in that kind of a scenario, just feelings of hopelessness as a nation. And to add to the heavy burdens that, uh, that they were feeling that way, then they had the self-righteous religious leaders who would heap upon them extra laws that weren't even in Scripture, but were, were meant to be fences around Scripture so that they didn't break the actual Scripture. But in, in doing that, they're just keeping extra burdens, and the people are just exasperated, feeling hopeless. 
but God hears their cries. God hears their cries. And like their ancestors, who felt abandoned by God for 400 years in Egypt, God was about to do something great for them. God was about to send a new covenant that had been promised centuries earlier. He was about to establish that new covenant by sending his son. So the big idea as we look at this text today, we're going to be going through in our, in our it's, it, well, okay, the big idea, here it is. The new covenant in Christ brings hope to the hopeless. The new covenant in Christ brings hope to the hopeless. So for our Advent series, we're going to be going through the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke and look at how God, how, how God through um, inspiring Luke to write these words, showed the hope that, w- that he was about to send. So we're going to see this in three points today as we go through the first portion. Uh, number one, the whisper of a new covenant. Number two, the preparer for the new covenant. And number three, the hope of the new covenant. So if you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Luke chapter 1. Um, maybe you have it on your phone or maybe you have a paper Bible in the pew in front of you. Luke chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we're going to pause there. As we look at what Luke is saying here, pay attention to some of the details of the words he uses. He makes note of Zechariah's priestly division. So, so Zechariah is a priest in the temple. He's working regularly as a priest in the temple. Then he mentions that Elizabeth was a daughter of Aaron, which meant her lineage was, was Levitical. So, so the Levites in the Old Testament times were the God-ordained priests of Israel. The sons of Aaron were the Levites. And in, in Jesus' day, or when Jesus was going to be born, in this time, when, when Zechariah is ministering, though, not necessarily all the priests were Levites. So this is, a, this is an important detail that Luke's bringing to our, our attention here, that Elizabeth was a daughter of Aaron. And then he mentions how righteous they were, and they were seen as such good people and, and righteous in the eyes of the Lord. So Luke wants his readers to view Zechariah and Elizabeth as righteously as possible. He wants us to look at them and go, boy, these these people are really an example um, of godly people that should be looked at at, with uh, positively. But there's another detail that he includes, and that's that Elizabeth was barren. She was infertile. And they were already advanced in years. So in our culture, that doesn't necessarily mean something negative. But in their day, being barren, that came with a lot of social stigma to it. 
So in those days, to, to be a, a barren woman, a woman who was unable to produce children for her husband, was, was looked upon poorly, very poorly. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But when you think about her being barren, as far as what Luke is saying in these first few verses, when he's, he's noting that she was the daughter of Aaron, that they're priests, that they're righteous, but she was barren. Okay, if you know your Bible, you think of the Old Testament. Is there any other situation where there's some people chosen by God to do things, and yet there was barrenness? Abraham, yes. Abraham and Sarah. It's probably the first one you think of. There's a couple others as well, but Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 21, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And how old is she? 90. 90 years old. And he had promised them that they would get children just a couple, like, a couple of decades earlier. So they're already aged when God comes to them and promises that he's going to give them a son. And then he only fulfills that 20 years later. So at 90 years old, though, come on, ladies. Those of you who are kind of past the childbearing years, you look at being 90, that's not, not exactly, does that sound like a blessing? <laughs> in, our day, in our day to be past that, I know that my, my wife, we've had four kids, she looks back at those years, she's like, no more, no more. But babe, 90, 90 might still be coming. <laughs> you never know. But, but at that age, ladies, you're supposed to be sitting at home and, and knitting and making buns, not growing a bun in the oven. <laughs> now, we're looking at Elizabeth at this point. So, so Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was, was 90, yes, but Elizabeth wasn't quite that old. She was probably uh, maybe in her 50s, maybe 60-ish, looking, when we look at um, how the priesthood worked and when men were supposed to retire and Zechariah wasn't retired yet and all that. But nevertheless, the, the parallel is there that Luke's drawing our attention to. God's about to do something big here. Luke's saying that Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation, very similar to that of Abraham and Sarah, And the people would, would have known that the new covenant was, being, was prophesied. And that that age, that the, the age of the Messiah was supposed to still come. So by seeing this, they'd be thinking, is the age of the new covenant about to begin? Is, the, is that age actually here? And that's exactly what Luke is saying. These initial words aren't just telling us about a couple of nice people who God decided to bless with a child in their old age. This is much greater. God is about to establish his new covenant with his people. Luke, so Luke in this portion is just whispering that that new covenant era is about to begin. Okay, so second, we're going to look at the prepper or the, the preparer for the new covenant so Luke 1, verses 8 to 10, now, now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
So let me explain what's happening here. Um, there should be a picture that comes up of the temple. Um, and in the temple, no, maybe, okay, we say it's not there. Okay, so if you imagine what the temple looks like, um, if you've seen pictures in your Bible, the, the temple is, has these outer courts, and then the, the building itself has two rooms on the inside. There's a first court, which is the court of the priests, and then there's the Holy of Holies. So only the priests can enter the first court, and this, there's this altar for incense right in the middle. Um, right, so if you see in the, yeah, where the division, the curtain is, that it has a number four, if you can see it from where you're sitting, right in front of it, you see a number five. That's where the altar of incense is. So the priest walks in, and pretty much between him and the curtain is only this altar of incense. And so he walks in, and he's going to burn incense, as was the custom and what they were supposed to do, to start the day of sacrifices, and then they also did it at the end of the day. So Zechariah enters the temple, he's about to walk over and burn incense, the people are praying outside because they're about to give their sacrifices, and so they're humbling themselves before the Lord, they're praying for the day of what's supposed to be happening, and Zechariah has gone into the temple to burn incense. So continuing in verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. This is the right response when you see an angel of the Lord. You see this throughout Scripture. Somebody encounters an angel of the Lord, they fall on their face because of the, the, the magnitude of the glory coming from this being. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So imagine being Zechariah, right? You're kind of in your later years of service, maybe getting ready for retirement. You walk in as you normally do, and you serve this. It's kind of this routine, and all of a sudden there's this, there's this being standing there just shining in glory, and so he falls down in fear and is just like, what's going on? You can imagine the, the, the astounding nature of this being. And then, and then this angel tells him that he's going to give him a child in his old age and that, and that this child is going to prepare the people, it's going to lead the people in repentance. I mean, that's kind of shocking, Right? So it would be easier to, I mean, imagine being him. It would be easy to start looking around and kind of going like, okay, where's people with the practical joke, cameras? Like, you're, you're filming me, right? You're going to show this later. Ha, ha, good stuff. But no, this is real. This is, what, this is what was happening. So Zechariah has a question for the angel. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? 
for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That's a good question. I mean, if if you think about being Zechariah in the moment, seems like a fair question. If it was me, I would probably ask the same thing, to be honest. But Gabriel wasn't going to take any lip. Look what Gabriel says. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. If you think back to that Old Testament comparison of Abraham and Sarah, they also were like, how's this going to happen? And, and Sarah laughs at the prospect. God doesn't give them the same kind of punishment that Zechariah receives here. So what's going on? Why does is, why is Zechariah get this kind of punishment when you look at the people in the Old Testament who question God when he brings things their way and they don't get the same kind of punishment? Does that make sense? We'll talk about that more in a second. But. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So normally this incense burning was a very quick thing, just a couple of minutes, but obviously he was taking a while. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So the biggest thing to take note of in this whole passage is that John was to be born to fulfill the prophecy that, from Malachi 3. The prophecy that God was going to send somebody in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the people to prepare them for the coming of the day of the Lord. John was the one to prepare the people for the one who would come and initiate and ratify the new covenant. But another thing to think on is Zechariah's response to Gabriel. So Zechariah's response was rooted in doubt. Zechariah goes in to the temple, like we said. Um, The angel's there. So so, so think of the situation that that Zechariah's in and, and that he shouldn't really have had doubts in that moment because here he is, a priest of the Lord, going into the Lord's temple... Only priests are allowed in there, and yet there's this being there, an angel, in the temple, and the message that he brings them is not something that was foreign to them, because Zechariah could have looked in the Old Testament, and he should have remembered there were situations where God did open wounds of barren women, even in the case of Sarah, who was 90 years old. So the message, the messenger, and the location all were pointing to this being true. So Zechariah should have recognized this, but he doubted. So when we think of the punishment that he gets in this moment, think of the magnitude of the revelation that he had. Basically, God expects more from those who have received more. You look at the revelation that Abraham and Sarah had, right? They didn't have the scriptures. They, they had their conversations with the Lord or with an angel who had come here and there. But 
There wasn't a lot that they could go on. They didn't have the written word to go and look to and remember the things that had happened before. But Zechariah, on the other hand, he's living in a time when he can look back on all the history of what God had done for his people, all of the miracles that God had performed, all of the wombs that he had already opened. So God expects more from those who've been given more. Jesus even tells a parable along these lines later in Luke 12, verses 42 to 48. Here's part of it. Um, And the Lord said, Who then is is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, and this is Jesus' point of the whole thing, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. So as we where we are in our day and time, in our place in salvation history. When I look around this room, I see a lot of people who have received much. We've received much. And as we approach Christmas time, a good question for us to ask ourselves, or what are we doing with what God has graciously given us? What are we doing with what God has given us? And let's think about that in two categories. First, riches. So for many of us, God has given us more in the way of earthly riches than than when you were a kid you would have ever imagined you would have had. I mean, by way of, of vehicles and homes and ability to go on vacations and job and salary and benefits and you name it. And the, the, the list goes on and on of all of the things that the Lord has blessed us with in our lives. He has made us rich. When we look at the scope of the world, the history of the world, if you live in Canada at this point in time, you are in the top 1% of the richest people that have ever lived, just by being here. So imagine, think, think about what is going on in your own heart, in your own mind, with what you're doing with your own riches. So as we approach Christmas time, we all look to give gifts to our friends and family. We, we go and we, we go shopping and we buy things. We, we get lists from the kids and we go and buy things for these kids. And it's great. And we're blessing our kids and we're blessing our loved ones. And that is, that is great. But in light of Jesus' words, are you using your finances as someone whose master could return at any moment? Are you giving generously to the cause of spreading the gospel? 
Even if you look back in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai is actually about what God's people are doing with their money. God's people are um, back in the land after captivity in Babylon. They come back to the land. They start building their own homes, and they're starting to put nice paneling on their houses. They're getting their big flat-screen TVs. They're, they're spending loads of money on the landscaping outside. Yet the temple, God's house, lays in ruins. So for us, when we look at how we're using our finances... We need to ask that question. Does the way we use our finances reflect how we value Christ and his kingdom? God cares about what you do with your money. So if the master were to return today and check your finances, what would he say? Second thing, revelation. And this is what Zechariah was dealing with in that moment, the revelation that he was receiving. But for us, we've received revelation that is far greater than even what Zechariah was receiving in that moment. Us, where we are in salvation history, we can look back. We, we've got God's word, Old Testament and new. We can look back on what God has done through Christ through his incarnation, through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on the cross for us, paying the price for our sins, him raising from the grave, ascending to heaven, promising to come back. We can see the works of the Holy Spirit through the, through the apostles in Acts and through the way that they wrote the New Testament, uh, the way Luke wrote, the way Paul, the way Peter, Jude, John. We can see all that God has done for his people throughout all of history and it sits on our shelf. We have, how many, how many, okay, you get the Bible app on your phone, how many, how many translations do you have on there? Goodness, we don't even know the number. You don't even know how many translations you have available at your fingertips any moment of the day, in any language you want. What are we doing with God's revelation to us. We have unlimited access to his word, to his holy, inerrant, inspired word. What are we doing with that? Then on, on this side of the cross, we can also look at how God has worked in history, how through the Old Testament law and the prophets, he points to the coming of Jesus, and then through the New Testament, looking back on all that Christ has done, and we can see how much grace God has poured out on us. And in his grace, we shouldn't just be receiving that grace, but we need to also be extending that grace. So it's like a downspout on a house, and last night it rained a lot, and I could hear the water pouring out of this downspout that we have uh, right beside our bedroom. And, and the, the rain comes on the house, and it just goes down this downspout and out. That's what God's grace needs to be doing in our lives. Not just entrenched in us, it, it should be changing us, but then it should be going out from us to our friends, to our family, to our brothers and sisters in the church. What are we doing with the revelation that God has given us? Are we out there caring about the spread of the gospel? 
not just financially, but, but are, we, are we taking measures to be able to share the gospel ourselves? If your master was to return today, what would he say with what you're doing with his revelations? Are you being a conduit of his grace? So it's easy to sit when you, when you hear you know, this kind of question and this kind of pointed um, analysis of, of what we have and what we're doing with it, and it's easy to kind of sit there in guilt, but that is not the goal here. That is not what I'm intending. My intention is not to bring any condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we do need to evaluate what we're doing because God does call us to be faithful with what he's given us. So don't sit in hopelessness. John was coming to prepare the way for Jesus to turn the people's hearts in repentance. And if you're examining your life right now and what you've done with the gifts that God has given you in the riches or in the revelation, and you're looking at that and you're going, man, there's things I need to change. Then move forward in faith and change. Follow that urging from the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. Turn in repentance and run back towards the cross. If you're living in some type of sin that, is, that just keeps coming back to you, run in repentance to the cross. Don't run away from Jesus. Don't avoid him. Don't pretend like, don't pretend like everything's fine when it's not. Turn your heart back to Christ. Live for him. Because there is hope in the new covenant. So the hope of the new covenant, verses 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So reproach is kind of a, like a negative um, opinion that other people have of her. If people have reproach towards Elizabeth, it's this negative opinion because being barren, if you couldn't produce children for your husband, that basically meant that you were cursed. That was the, that was the, that was the mindset. She hasn't given him any kids. Oh, what has she done? God must be cursing her. And so even, even though her and Zechariah were righteous people serving and um, loving their neighbors well, probably, and all of these good things, living as righteously as possible, still, people would have looked at her and thought, oh man, what has she done? For people who were barren in those days, um, ladies, um, if they were barren and they weren't able to produce children, they, they were hopeless in a sense or one step away from hopelessness because if her husband would have died, any woman in those days, if the husband would have died, you rely on the children to come and, and support you, particularly sons. And she didn't have sons. She didn't even have a daughter to marry off to a son-in-law could, who could help her. So her whole adult life she was one step away from disaster. 
can't imagine that. But God, in fulfilling his promise to bring the Messiah, to enter or to usher in a new covenant era, is showing that in that new covenant, there is hope even for the most hopeless. Even for the most hopeless. And on this side of the cross, in our society and, and where we live, that goes for all of us. In our sin, we are completely hopeless. We are lost in our sin, in our, in our nature that we're born with, conceived in sin. From the earliest of stages, you have acted out of your sin towards your parents as, as a baby, growing up through your elementary years, your middle school, high school years, and now as an adult. If you're in your natural state, you are lost in sin and without hope. So it's only through this new covenant hope in Christ that we have hope. God in his rich mercy showed his incomparable love for us by sending his son, born of a virgin, And his way was prepared by this amazing event that we've just read about and just studied. And God did this all because of his love for us. And in Hebrew, that love is is, um, called chesed. Chesed, love, means his covenant-fulfilling love. So God, in his chesed, he comes to us through his grace and, in mer- and his mercy and by his faithfulness fulfills his covenant by sending his son, Jesus. Fulfills the covenant of Abraham, Moses, David by sending Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those covenants and in Christ now we are in that new covenant enjoying that chesed love from him because he is faithful, even when we are not. So there is hope. So if you're feeling hopeless, don't sit in that hopelessness. There is hope. And that hope has come by God sending his Savior. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that while humanity was lost and hopeless, you extended your love for us by, by promising that you would send a son, that you, by promising that you would send a savior. And then, Father, being faithful to your word and doing that. Lord, it is, when, when we look on our own lives, when we look on how we've dealt with the gifts you've given us, I think many of us can, can look on our, what we've done with our, the gifts you've given us, what we've done with the revelation you've given us, and we see areas where we can improve, areas where we can show that where we can change and show by the way we live that our first commitment is to you and your kingdom. So Lord, I pray for all of us as we go into this Christmas season and we're dealing, uh, looking at our bank accounts and uh, thinking about where we're giving and who we're giving to. Lord, would you move us to be generous to your kingdom? Generous to the spread of the gospel, both both here in Abbotsford and beyond. Lord, there's no greater news. There's no greater news than the fact that you, Lord Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, chose to come and live and be born in humble beginnings in a stable to live a life experiencing all of the things that we experience, walking dirty streets, having to encounter people and live among people that are sinful when you yourself was sinless. And then by dying for us, raising again to new life, Lord, you, what you did, what you have done, what you are doing and what you will do. Still, as we wait, await that second coming, that second advent, Lord, it is just mind-blowing to be a part of that story. So I pray that you would humble us all, convict us by your spirit of our sin, lead us to live for you, to use all of our gifts for you, Lord, to be conduits of your grace. So for each one of us in this room and that are online, Lord, I pray that you bless us in this Christmas season with joy. Draw us nearer to you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.